Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that it uh, teaches us, instructs us, corrects us when we are wrong. It also encourages us, gives us comfort. It is the means by which you speak to us and help us to understand uh, truth and what's right. Help us, Father, to understand what you've written in your word on this topic this morning and we pray that you would help us to have hearts welcome to hear what you have to say and ready to respond in obedience. Father, we thank you that you are gracious and forgiving and patient with us and that you are very long-suffering and uh, we pray that you would help us to be that way as well, that we would be forgiving, recognizing we've been forgiven a great deal, uh, much more than uh, we've, we've done more wrong to you than will ever be done to us, and we need to be forgiving and accepting of those who ask our forgiveness. Help us, Father, to learn from this passage, understand what you've written, and apply it correctly to our lives, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Perhaps you've heard one of these phrases before, uh, or perhaps even have said one of them. Have you heard the phrase, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget? Or perhaps you've heard the phrase, or used the phrase, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Now, there can be times and ways in which these statements can have a measure of truth to them, but often the attitude behind these kinds of phrases is a critical spirit that is unwilling to ultimately forgive in a biblical fashion, and it is a danger that we need to be careful for. Yes, there are people, for example, that do take advantage of us, and we do need to be discerning. But we also need to be careful not to be like Peter where he says to our Lord, how many times am I supposed to forgive them? Seven times? Uh, so there's a point at which I don't have to forgive anymore? That's, and, and our Lord makes that very clear. No, 70 times seven. And it's not that we count to 490. The idea is if, if you are sinned against and a person comes to you and asks for your forgiveness, you forgive them. You're not keeping tally on how many times they've done wrong to you. You forgive them. Now, as we uh, look at 2 Corinthians this morning, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. The subject of forgiveness is what Paul is talking about here, but the forgiveness he's referring to is not just an individual offense against one person and the forgiveness in that case. The idea is a forgiveness in relates, relation to the church. There's been some problem with an individual in the church and the church has responded to and dealt with that and Paul's telling them now it's time to forgive and welcome this individual back into the fellowship. So, we're going to dive into those details. We're going to look at 5 through 11 and learn more about this forgiveness and how we are to comfort the forgiven or receive back into the fellowship those that are repentant and restored to the previous relationship that they had. So let's look at 5 through 11 in chapter 2 this morning. 
It says, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which has been inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, for to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you, have, you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven for indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So, as we look at this passage this morning, uh, it's helpful to understand. I know we had the week uh, at home, uh, Bedside Baptist, as we joked last week, we had to cancel because of the weather. But a couple weeks ago, we talked about um, how uh, Paul had um, some difficulty in his visit to Corinth in between the first and second uh, Corinthians epistles that we have here recorded in scripture. And in part of that visit, uh, we, we understand from things he says here in second Corinthians that there was some trouble and perhaps even there was an individual that was resistant to Paul's leadership and was encouraging other members in the church to resist Paul. And, it's, and it seems that the church, uh, at the time, the majority of the church did not do anything about that opposition that Paul experienced while he was there. Um, however, uh, it seems that from what we're reading that uh, perhaps this is the individual that caused the trouble and there's been repentance and now... Uh, the church is reluctant to take that individual back and to receive them. And so Paul is addressing that in this passage about how they're to handle this individual. So I think it presents a great opportunity for us to understand sin and forgiveness, repentance and restoration into the fellowship again. So let's first of all, though, look at verse 5 and notice that sin causes great destruction. In order to understand forgiveness... Part of what we need to understand is destruction that is caused by sin. In verse 5, he talks about sorrow. He says here, but if any has caused sorrow, he caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. So sin does cause sorrow. Sin brings trouble. Sin, while it may seem momentarily enjoyable or fun, ultimately has consequences and the cost of that sin is high. It's interesting to think about the impact of sin. It is hard to get our minds around how destructive sin really is. I was just at a uh, church activity yesterday where someone was sharing the gospel and they were explaining that we need eternal life and eternal life is not automatic and and that's because we have sinned and and we're not by nature good we're sinners that sin that started with adam and eve has led to many people uh being lost forever permanently separated from god it's been the cause of what is ultimately led to uh, the death passing upon the human race it is what's behind diseases and sicknesses. Now, not 
uh, a direct relationship necessarily. You've sinned in a certain way, therefore you're going to get this disease. That does happen in some cases, but generally speaking, because of sin is why we have diseases, death, and sickness. In our world, sin is extremely destructive. It's destructive in the individual's life as well. The Bible tells us the way of the transgressor is hard. There's difficulty and sorrow that comes with sin. But we also need to understand this sorrow is not just individual. It's not just affecting one person, but it is also causing pain and difficulty to the body. Notice how Paul brings out the fact that this individual who sinned has caused sorrow, and the sorrow has affected all of them, the congregation. When an individual member of a church falls into sin, it causes hardship and difficulty to the rest of the church family. Have you had a family member, an extended family member, or an immediate family member who's made some really bad choices and are destructive and do you not feel the pain and the suffering that goes along with that? And you know the difficulties they're bringing on their own life? Isn't that very hard and difficult and brings a lot of sorrow? And some sins are destructive to the unity of the family or the unity of the church and bring sorrow and difficulty that way, right? I think we understand as uh, church members that uh, sin brings difficulty not just to an individual's life, but also to the body. And Paul makes it especially clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to have you turn over there with me for a minute because I think that's a very important passage in light of this subject here. In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with the seriousness of sin. We need to understand sin is destructive, and as a church... Sin must be treated very seriously or it can spread and cause harm to other members of the body or be destructive. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13, Paul is dealing with an individual who's committed an act of immorality that he says does not even exist among the Gentiles. It's a very hideous sin. And Paul is pointing out that they need to deal with this. Look down at verse, verse 6. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is pointing out that if you have somebody committing a heinous sin like this, that individual is demonstrating a life that is that of an unbeliever, and you need to separate out from that individual. You need to uh, boot them out, put them out of the church, because clearly... They are not following Christ, and, and we are also in danger of the influence of sin being tolerated in the church, spreading to other people and affecting others. Sin is very destructive, and it needs to be dealt with very severely. And I believe that's what we're seeing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, is the after effects of the church having dealt with a sin and confronting an individual. But sin is very, very serious as a threat, and we need to treat it that way. 
We, we do live in a world in which individualism is highly promoted. And we have a, a society that seems to indicate you just do whatever you want to do and it doesn't matter how that affects other people. You just do what's right for you. But that is not a biblical worldview at all. Our lives are interconnected, and if you're in the body of Christ, you're a member of the body of Christ. We're members one of another, as it says in, in Corinthians. We are members of one another, and what we do affects other people. We need to understand that. Sin has great impact and is very destructive. But Paul then goes on, and I want you to see here, to talk about the duties of forgiveness, what's involved in ultimately having forgiveness. Now, we're going to fill some of this in from uh, another familiar passage like Matthew 18, but I want you to see that there is duties or responsibilities we have in forgiveness. He talks about in verses 6 and 7. He says, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise a, a, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So notice, first of all, that they confronted sin. They confronted six. He said, uh, he, they confronted sin. He says in verse six, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Punishment, what does that mean? Well, I believe this is an indication that they were following church discipline to deal with this individual. So let's go and look at Matthew 18 quickly. I know it's a familiar passage, but yet I think it's very important in light of the subject of sin and forgiveness. Matthew 18, um, looking at 15, 15 to 20 actually is the uh, section that goes along with this. But it talks about the process of confronting sin. So it, it talks about the process of confronting, uh, in this case, a private sin that uh, has happened between two individuals. He says in verse 15, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So we have, first of all, the step of confidential confrontation. So there's an individual one-on-one -on -one confrontation that takes place. But if he doesn't listen, verse 16 uh, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So we have the confirmation of the sin taking place there. Now, if that continues to fail, it says if he um, refuses to listen to them, verse 17, tell it to the church. All right, so we have the congregational confrontation then. So the sin continues to escalate because the individual does not repent, does not recognize or repent of their sin, um, and it escalates to congregational. And then it tells us that if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you are to excommunicate him. He is acting as an unbeliever. He will not recognize his sin and take responsibility for his sin and repent of it. Therefore, he is to be excluded, excommunicated from the church because he is acting like an unbeliever. Therefore, he is not welcome in the church. So there's a process of confront confrontation that takes place and I believe this is the backdrop of what he's talking about in chapter 2. 
the individual there referred to has gone through this kind of process. He says the individual has experienced the punishment inflicted by the majority. I believe that's the point. It's a congregational decision. The majority of them have agreed that this individual has sinned and refuses to acknowledge that or change, and therefore they've taken this kind of step to exclude the individual from the congregation. But notice, ultimately, what is the purpose of this confrontation? The purpose is, one, to remove sin. So the whole point of this, they're going through this, is to confront the individual about their sin so that they'll change, so they'll stop sinning, so the sin will be dealt with. And ultimately, if they will not deal with it, then it needs to be removed from the church because we don't want the rest of the church to be affected. And that's what Paul's talking about, removing the lump, to, or the, the leaven from the lump so it doesn't affect the whole lump. So there is a purpose of removing sin, but there is also the hope in this process that there will be a restoration of the sinner. If the individual repents, then you stop the process. If the individual repents, you don't continue to escalate the problem. You res the individual is restored. The matter is resolved. You're done. But... We see in this case what seems to be happening here in 2 Corinthians is there was an agreement to move forward with this process by the majority. The punishment was taken. Individual was excluded. But now Paul is saying it's time to conclude the process. The punishment needs to be done. Why? Because the individual must have repented. Therefore, they need to be restored. They need to be welcomed back into the fellowship. The purpose of church discipline is to bring restoration, ultimately, of the individual. That's, that's the goal. So Paul's saying it's time to welcome back this individual. Verse, verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So another duty of forgiveness uh, it, it starts with confrontation if there's repentance then you forgive the goal, the duty is to forgive the problem in this case was they had continued to carry out the discipline or the punishment and they were not recognizing the need to change or to accept the person's repentance and uh, welcome them back so the prescription here is that they are to forgive they should Forgive the individual for what he's done and welcome them back because of their repentance. The punishment had reached its conclusion and therefore they needed to stop excluding the individual from the fellowship. They needed to accept that person back. But they were continuing to struggle with that. Perhaps uh, we, we are not given any reasons why this is the case, but they just were not accepting the individual back. I want you to Look with me um, at Luke chapter 17 for a minute and talk about another aspect of forgiveness because um, I think there's a pattern to how we're to forgive that is sometimes misunderstood. Now, we, we understand from 2 Corinthians here the individual must have taken the proper steps of repentance because Paul's saying it's good enough. They, they've repented. They've dealt with it. You need to accept them back. 
But we need to understand there is a pattern of forgiveness. We talked about Matthew 18, and if the person repents, you, you stop escalating the process. The, the individual is forgiven. You move on. Um, but um, we, I think, sometimes may misunderstand. When, when do we forgive? When are we supposed to forgive? Look with me at Matthew 17, verses 3 and 4. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Okay, so like we said, when the, the pattern of forgiveness, what's included is confrontation. We need to confront individuals who sinned and done wrong to us. We need to rebuke them. We need to confront them about it. But then he says, if he repents, forgive him. But notice verse 4. He says, if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now we can understand in part maybe where Peter gets the idea of only seven times, right? That was already challenging to their thinking. But think with me about what this says carefully. I know it's familiar, and so we tend to go over it quickly without understanding or letting it sink in. Seven times a day. And he says, I repent. Jesus says, forgive him. Now, I don't know about you, but my typical response, if, if my wife and I are having a difficulty, just to use an example, and this doesn't, it doesn't happen this way, okay? That's not a real event. But if my wife were to say something bad to me, you know, be angry with me, takes, yell at me or whatever, she never does. But if she were to do that, and then she said, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And, and she asked me to forgive her. I would, and I, I would accept that. If she did that seven times in the same day, would, would you not think it natural for me to say, she doesn't mean that? If she really meant it, it wouldn't have happened seven times today, right? That, I think, is our normal human response. And while there may sometimes be some truth to it, our Lord does not say, forgive them if they really mean it. And they demonstrate it by how they've changed, right? Now, now follow me here. We got, I don't want you to misunderstand. Our tendency is to want to be critical of those who are repenting and expressing sorrow for their sin. And we may tend to not want to forgive them. He says, if they come to you seven times a day, and say, I repent, forgive them. They are making the effort to acknowledge their wrong and repent of that. You forgive them. Now, that is a little contrary to how we tend to think about it. And this is in the context of an individual relationship. Now, it can be more complicated in a church situation. If, for example, somebody is committing immorality living with somebody they should not be living with, and they come back and say, well, I'm sorry, but they continue to live with that person, that's clearly not repentance. You, you understand the difference, what I'm saying. But generally speaking, the idea is if somebody is expressing sorrow for their sin, we need to forgive them, not stand in judgment over them, saying, well, you know, if you really meant this, you wouldn't have done it the seventh time. Or have this attitude, yeah, I'll forgive you, but I'm going to just realize you're going to do this again, and I'm going to guard myself. 
We need to forgive. We need to forgive. That's what our Lord says. And we also should understand we need to forgive like our Lord forgives us, right? Our Lord forgives us. How much? The first message I think I preached at Ambassador when starting this time as interim pastor was Matthew 18, the, the parable of the uh, servant who owed 10,000 talents to his master, right? And the master was willing to forgive that, and he wouldn't forgive his fellow servant who owed him much less. And, and the point of that passage is God is forgiven. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you know the forgiveness of your sin from God, that debt you owe to God is greater than anyone can ever owe against you. So to be unwilling to forgive is completely unreasonable and is ultimately a warning by our Lord that if you will not forgive, that indicates you've never truly accepted God's forgiveness of your sin. We need to forgive, but I would also mention here, I think is significant to understand, forgiveness is conditional. What do I mean? Forgiveness happens when there's repentance. We aren't forgiven by God if we're not going to him and repenting of our sin. If we're not asking for his forgiveness, seeking his forgiveness, um, and repenting of our sin, he doesn't forgive us, right? Forgiveness requires repentance. We're forgiven conditionally upon repentance. So if an individual has sinned against us, we can't really forgive them unless that's been dealt with. They need to ask for forgiveness. That is a necessary part of the step. So you might be saying, well, then what do I do if somebody never tries to make it right with me? Well, ultimately, you need to give that to God. But you can't truly follow the process of forgiveness if someone never asks for it. It's part of the process. It needs to involve repentance and that being accepted. You let go of the wrong they've done to you. So I think it's a little bit of a disservice and perhaps a confusion of the gospel sometimes when you may see someone who's done a heinous crime like kill somebody and people say to this killer, I forgive you. Well, technically, if they've not repented and sought the forgiveness, you can't ultimately let that go. Do you understand what I'm saying? And it actually confuses the gospel. God doesn't just forgive us without repentance. There needs to be repentance. We need to forgive, but there needs to be repentance. And in this case, with this individual, there's repentance, which is why Paul is saying you need to welcome that person back. And how does he say to welcome them back? He also, he says that there needs to be comfort. There needs to be comfort. Look with me at verse 7. He says, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. The idea of the word comfort here is to come alongside. It's the same word we talked about at the beginning of the book, how God is the God of all comfort. He acts graciously towards us and encourages us. We ought to act that way towards a person who's repented. 
We, for, we accept, their, we, we forgive them, but we also continue to have a good relationship with them. The relationship is restored because they've been forgiven. It's not a forgive, but I'm going to keep you at a distance. I'm never going to trust you again. It is a welcoming back into the fellowship, a positive encouragement for the person who's repentant. And let's not forget, we are a congregation of forgiven sinners, are we not? That's one of the problems, I think, that happens with forgiveness is we fail to recognize we've been forgiven so much. We are not a congregation of perfect individuals who never do wrong. We are a congregation of forgiven sinners. So we need to be in the habit of forgiving and giving comfort and encouragement. Someone who's done wrong but has repented and been restored needs to be encouraged to continue to do right, to be welcomed back into the fellowship. There's an urgency to show this kind of comfort, he says, so that the individual's not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. If, if they're not welcomed back, if they're not part of the fellowship again, they're in danger of being overwhelmed and becoming discouraged and, and falling away potentially from the Lord. We need to comfort those individuals. We also need to confirm our love for those individuals. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. To reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. We need to reaffirm or confirm our love for this individual. The idea is of confirm is that of ratify. And I, and I believe the idea is that of a public recognition of this individual being restored. If they've gone through a church discipline process and have been excommunicated, but they've repented and they're being forgiven and welcomed back into the fellowship, it's a public recognition that they are restored again into fellowship. So we need to confirm their love, our love for that individual. But we also see dangers if we disobey this kind of situation and, and don't welcome back an individual who's repented. He says in verses 10 and 11, but one whom you, one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So say, first of all here, a danger is disruption in the congregation or in the individual's life by the deceiver, that is Satan. Forgiveness and restoration is a foundational principle to the gospel and the operation of the church. And if we're not handling that process correctly, it leaves the door open for the deceiver to do destructive things in the congregation and individuals' life, life as well as in the, in the community. It leaves open the door for the deceiver. We also see the individual can drown in sorrow over it. Look again, verse 7. The individual might be overwhelmed, it says. There is a godly sorrow. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He talks about a godly sorrow leads to repentance. 
Sometimes we experience hard things. We experience difficulty. We experience sorrow. And godly sorrow leads us to repentance, to good sorrow. But there is also a sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance and doesn't have good fruit. And the danger is if somebody cannot be forgiven and received back, they can be overwhelmed and drown in their sorrow and ultimately might lead to abandoning church altogether or abandoning the faith. We need to be mindful of the danger to the individual. It also can divide the congregation. We see here how it mentions that the majority have inflicted this punishment on the individual, and it may be that there wasn't universal agreement about it. And if there continues to be this ongoing tension over the issue of whether the individual is welcome back or not, it can result in a dividing of the congregation. That is something the wicked one loves to do. It can cause division in the congregation. We must forgive and welcome back. And I believe also it can be a distortion of the gospel. It can be a distortion of the gospel. So we need to forgive and understand that forgiveness is a basic part of the Christian life. It's a foundational principle. And if we don't practice forgiveness and restoration in the fellowship, that confuses the message of the gospel. Forgiveness is at, is at the root of having eternal life, having a relationship with God. We are sinners who have wrong, done wrong to God, but because of the work of Christ on our behalf, we repent of our sin and trust in Christ and we're forgiven and we have fellowship with God. If we don't carry out the process the right way in our individual lives or in our corporate life as a church, we're distorting the message of the gospel. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to blind people's minds to the gospel so they don't accept it. We need to be sure we're not only speaking and teaching the gospel clearly, but we're also demonstrating our belief in it by our lives and our practices in the church matching it. And ultimately, a unwillingness to forgive can also be destructive to our own souls. As we talked about in Matthew 18, verses 34 to 35, Jesus talks about the individual who will not forgive. Ultimately, that individual will not be forgiven. And, I, and as I explained at that message many, many weeks ago, months ago, it is an indication if someone is absolutely unwilling to forgive, it is a demonstration of an unbelieving heart. Because God makes his children to be conduits of forgiveness. We've received forgiveness and it runs through us and we forgive others. He did not make us in the cul-de-sacs of forgiveness. We get it and no one else can have it. He has made us to be forgiving. And it is a picture of the gospel when practiced correctly. And is a distortion of it when we don't do it. We need to remember that forgiveness is critical to how we behave and interact with other individuals and also how we function as a church. If somebody has done wrong and has been excluded, they repent of that, uh, they are to be forgiven and restored as we see here.
Now, in wrapping up, I know we've covered a lot of things. I'll just remind you of several principles we've talked about here in conclusion. First, church discipline should happen for sinning members who refuse to repent. In our day and age, it's not popular. The idea of tough love, uh, dealing with problems is not popular, but churches need to discipline offending members who will not repent of their sin. And discipline should be by the majority. That's not something just carried out by one individual who has a grudge against somebody else. As we see here, the punishment was inflicted by the majority. It is done by the function of the majority of the congregation. It doesn't necessarily have to be 100% consensus, but it should be the majority. And the purpose of discipline is to remove sin or else uh, hopefully that results in the repentance and restoration of the individual. We engage in confrontation of sin to hopefully start the process of a change in that individual's life. That's ultimately what we hope for. And when the sinner repents, therefore, they should be forgiven and restored to fellowship. And if we're not careful, severity and discipline can lead to desperation in the individual's life, division and destruction in the church. And we need to be careful uh, to handle the process correctly. We need to recognize that sin is very serious and must be confronted. The solution to all this is not to ignore sin and just overlook it. That's not the answer. We need to confront sin. We need to confront individuals when they've done wrong. And when they repent, recognize that, forgive them, receive them back. But in the church, uh, it's important that we follow process as laid out for us in the scriptures. And when a person repents, we welcome them back into fellowship. And as he says here, confirming and comforting them. We need to recognize we are all sinners forgiven by God. If we've repented and trusted Christ, we've been forgiven by God, and we're a congregation of forgiven sinners. We must not forget that. And we also, therefore, must practice forgiveness and restoration as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you give us grace to forgive. You give grace to your children to accept repentance and to let go of the anger or frustration or hurt that somebody caused us. Father, forgiveness can be challenging, but we thank you for the grace you give us because we we recognize you forgive us far more than has ever done wrong to us or ever will be done to us. Help us to be conduits for forgiveness. Help us to be eager and quick to forgive. Uh, But help us, Father, not to just think because we need to be forgiven, we need to overlook sin and just not worry about it. No, we need to confront it. Help us, Father, to confront it, to deal with it, not ignore it. Father, I pray for your grace and wisdom as well. Uh, It's sometimes hard to know when and how to confront. I pray for your grace and wisdom and how and when to do that. But help us, Father, to be forgiving, to 
accept back, restore the relationship, and be focused on the restoration of the individual who has sinned and repented. Help us to be willing to do that. Help us not to be hard-hearted. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.